Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I am reminded today of a small dinner that we had several years ago with W. Kamau Bells in New York. And there are a number of activists of color around the table, including Anthea Chino, top Native American political leader in the country, one of our guests today, as well as other activists working on other issues, including comprehensive immigration reform. So we all introduced ourselves and explained to Kamau a bit about our political and professional work. And then when we were done, Kamau says, now I think Anathea is sitting there saying, when you say immigration reform, exactly what are you referring to? And I'm just delighted today that we're going to get a chance to confront these questions of what do we mean about who is an immigrant, who is quote unquote legal or illegal, who does this country belong to? And then the context of a nation where the land was taken by violence and bloodshed from its original inhabitants, what should progressives be doing today? And so that's what we're going to be getting into in our conversation today. And along with Anathea, we have the distinct honor of welcoming one of the country's leading activists, writers, and scholars on Native American history and U.S. history with a Native lens. And so join me for this conversation is my co-host, Charlene Chang. Hi, Charlene. How are you? And do you want to introduce our distinguished guest? Yes, I would love to introduce our two guests today. First, I will let everyone know about Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. She is a historian, author, memoirist, and speaker. And I also know that a lot of our listeners already know her work, but I'm going to give a little short bio for those who uh, may need some reminding or don't know her work as well. She is the author of several books and articles on Indigenous people's rights to self-determination, including the book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States, and her newest book, which I'm really looking forward to talking to her about in today's conversation, Not a Nation of Immigrants, Settler Colonialism, White Supremacy, and a History of Erasure and Exclusion. That's got to be one of the best book titles of the year. Roxanne is the daughter of a tenant farmer and has been active in the international indigenous movement for over four decades. Also joining us today is Anathea Chino. She's the co-founder and executive director of Advanced Native Political Leadership. Advanced Native, which is what it's called for short, is the first and only national Native organization focused on electing Native Americans to local and state leadership. Anathea has over 17 years of experience as a political strategist at the tribal, state, and national levels. She was selected for the She the People 20 for 2020 list for her dedication to queer, indigenous, and women of color representation in politics. Welcome, Roxanne and Anathea. Thank you, Charlene. Thank you both. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah, we love having you guys here in that. Roxanne, you probably don't know this, but Anathea put you on our radar, which was our deficit back when we were. uh, So when I wrote Brown is the New Way, we published in 2016, Charlene was my book editor. And we really tried to lay out the demographic composition of the country as well as putting that in historical context. And so your book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States, was really our anchor in terms of the whole uh, Native American community in particular, and then incorporating that perspective into, into our analysis. So we lean very heavily on that, on the recommendation um, of Anathea. So we're just delighted to have you both here. Well, thank you, Steve. And thank you, Anathea, for recommending me. <laughs> Absolutely, always. It's wonderful to hear your voice, Roxanne. I miss you. I miss you. Oh, <laughs> I'm just so uh, glad to have the chance to have both of you in this conversation today. It's a real honor and rare opportunity. 
and uh, just a really special opportunity for our listeners to be able to hear from both of you. Roxanne, I'll just jump in first with a question. Again, the title of your new book is Not a Nation of Immigrants. And I wanted to ask you, what in your own words do you mean when you say that U.S. is not a nation of immigrants? Well, it's a settler colonial state. So this nation of immigrants conceit uh, is fairly new. It was invented in uh, 1958 by Senator John F. Kennedy before, well, while he was beginning to run for president, which he became in 1960. And he was a child of Irish immigrants and a Catholic. And every single president before that had been either Anglo-Saxon or Scots-Irish, not Irish Catholic, but Scots-Irish Calvinist Protestant. So they had set up, uh, you know, the 13 colonies had, were British colonies, which from the very beginning were settler colonies. They patterned it, the British patterned it on Northern Ireland, Ulster. They colonized all of Ireland, mm. but it was only the North, Northern counties, um, which today is still Northern Ireland. It's still a part of Britain and it's still disputed. They cleared out the Irish Catholics and replaced them with Scottish Calvinists and other Protestants, Welsh and English as well, but mainly Scots-Irish. So those settlers then, uh, they used this pattern of clearing out people in these colonies one by one as they set them up and uh, bringing in settlers from England, Wales, and um uh, beginning in, in the uh, 1700s, early 1700s, these very Scots-Irish who had settled, uh, who were settlers in Northern Ireland and very practiced settlers became coming in great numbers. And um, that's the basic population of Appalachia. They, uh, there wasn't that much land left, so they moved into the peripheries. So it's totally a settler colonial state. It was the first state formed as a settler colonial state. Others came afterwards, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Argentina. The Spanish saw how well the United States was doing and imitated, cleared out people in uh, the Mapuche people and Guarani people and replaced them with mostly Southern European Italian settlers, which it is today, and also Uruguay, parts of Chile, settler colonial, also South Africa. Uh, although they never got more than 20% of the population, white uh, still today in Rhodesia. So this is what settler colonialism is. And those are not called immigrants. I mean, if you call them immigrants, it's not an official title. There were no immigration laws other than exclusion, the Alien and Sedition Act. And the first immigration law was in 1884, and it was to exclude Chinese coming. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Who were being recruited to work on the railroads, uh, recruited to um, in the gold country um, in great numbers. And they kept coming, but contingent without any kind of documentation. So very, very vulnerable. And so exclusion was the basis of U.S. immigration when it did start. Let me ask a little bit about the, because um, clearly you're situating your title in your book in the context of a contemporary debate, 
right? So it's like not a nation of immigrants, meaning that a lot of people think that it is a nation of immigrants. And so you touched on it a little bit in terms of the Kennedy piece, but I was struck um, looking at your book, you have this sentence, uh, it referenced the musical Hamilton, where you said that during the Obama administration, the nation of immigrants chorus actually became a musical celebrating Hamilton as an immigrant. There's a lot of different, Charlene and I debate, you know, the merits and pros and cons of Hamilton itself. But in terms of, I think what was interesting about what you're saying is that that, that this uh, framing was very much popularized in, you know, by Democrats in particular, right? So we have this kind of juxtaposition where we have Trump rising to power on demonizing immigrants. And then the Democrats saying, no, we're actually a nation of immigrants. And then you're coming in and saying, no, we're not a nation of immigrants. So I just wondered if you could say a little bit more about how you've seen that framing and that analysis come into being and it being kind of a bipartisan mindset. Yeah. And Hamilton was very anti-immigrant. As I say, he was the author of the Alien and Sedition Acts that would keep almost anyone out. And he himself was, of course, not an immigrant. He was quite British colonial in uh, the Caribbean who uh, moved from one colony, a British colony, to another to go to university because there were no universities in the Caribbean. So British people in the Caribbean generally sent their their sons uh, to Columbia University, the only university. And so it was really like someone moving today from California to New York to go to NYU. You wouldn't call them an immigrant. So it was, you know, a false, plus Lin-Manuel Miranda, uh, who wrote and directed the play, uh, call himself an immigrant. He's from Puerto Rico, you know, which is a colony of the United mm-hmm. States. It's not a... Good point. <laughs> <laughs> They've been citizens since 1906, so he, no way was his father. It's actually his father who came, or his mother, uh, were not immigrants, so... Uh, that distortion, but that nation of immigrants, uh, you're right, it was very much a liberal, uh, like John F. Kennedy. Um, I think he was, he wrote it as kind of propaganda. It's mostly about the Irish mm-hmm. and how wonderful they are. And um, even up to saying that they may have been in North America before the Native Americans. Uh, there is this mythology popular in many places, but uh, especially with the Irish, that that the people, and, and Kennedy repeats this in a book. He published a book called A Nation of Immigrants. He invented the term uh, in 1958. So he's preparing to run for president. And he wants to normalize himself so he's not seen as a Catholic, an alien, you know, uh, immigrant. And so he he has this little thing, you know, where he goes back and forth about Native Americans and Will Rogers, a friend of his, and told him that, that uh, Native people were here first. But he said he didn't disagree. He says this in the book. He actually writes that the Native Americans who were here when uh, the Europeans came, even the Spanish, were not the aborigines that they had invaded from the north and killed off all the original aborigines wow so they he calls he calls native americans the first immigrants Mm. so that's how (laughs) messed up the concept is Mm. yeah definitely thank you so much roxanne i'm going to turn now to ben very exciting for me, and I'm sure many uh, to be witnessing over the past few years, a, a very noticeable growing 
power, I think, of Native Americans being represented in U.S. politics. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the examples is U.S. Secretary of Interior Deb Haaland, who I'm a big fan of. Secretary Haaland, for um, those listening, made history when she became the first Native American to serve as a cabinet secretary. And during the 2020 election, six Native American individuals were elected to the House, which was a record-breaking number. And as I mentioned in Anathea's bio, she's the founder of an organization called Advanced Native Political Leadership, and that group has played a significant role in helping to get more Native people elected. Anathea, can you tell us a little bit more about Advanced Native Political Leadership and basically what motivated you to start that organization? Absolutely. Uh, thank you for the question. Thank you for the, the explanation, um, Roxanne. I, so Advancing a Political Leadership was co-founded in um, as an organization in 2015. We have four co-founders. It's myself, Peggy Flanagan, who is White Earth Nation of Ojibwe of the Ojibwe Nation. She's the Lieutenant Governor of Minnesota. It's Kevin Killer, who is the current president of the Oglala Sioux Tribe in South Dakota and a former state senator in South Dakota. And Chrissy Castro, who is Navajo and Chicana based out of LA and is the executive director of our sister state organization called California Native Vote. We came together in 2015 um, and we hired staff in 2020, so we're still a very new organization, but ultimately in 2015, we led a discovery of a landscape analysis to better understand the challenges and opportunities to Native Americans achieving parity in elected office. So over the course of um, more than 100 interviews of people all across the country, we determined that there are a number of different challenges throughout the institution of like kind of like traditional political systems on the national level and also on the state-based level. So we set out and we like had this idea that like if we're going to start taking small chunks to address what it would take for us to achieve parity, where would we start? And we started um, really with a ton of relationship building. The intent has always been that we are doing this in community with the state-based organizations that have already done this work while holding that there has not been a national entity that is able to drive the work forward to build a power building mechanism that is connecting the states that are connecting the national organizations, native and non-native. So we have stepped into this space to bring more people into politics, into elected politics. And so like as our overarching goal, there's a number I always think of this as kind of like peeling back the layers of an onion. But the overarching goal is if we're looking at the numbers of uh, people in elected office, so we're like the number out there that we that is available is that there are 512,000 elected positions all across levels, all through the states. Wow. And yes. <laughs> and so we hold just over 100 of those positions. Mm. Wow. And so when we look at the state, like the census of the numbers that have just been released, in order for us to achieve parity, we have to elect 16,250 Native and Indigenous people to elected office. Wow. So <laughs> we have. A yeah, huge, it weren't cut out. <laughs> they have a huge, right on that. Right. <laughs> so we start thinking, okay, like if we're going to move backward, like a traditional campaign, what does it look like for us to start again, taking small chunks to address how many people we need to recruit? So the number that we kind of go that we're leaning towards, and this is over like the next 10 years, give or so, is that we need to recruit if for every four people that you recruit, one person runs. Mm. So that's 65,000 Native people that we need to get to run for office. 
So mm. we're, we are starting with our first inaugural cohort of 12. So itty bitty steps, but we're getting there um, in, de- in December. So all of this has been leading up to making sure that we're reaching out to the community, that we are educating, because when I say that, it means like, like my uh, metaphor of like the layers of an onion have meant that that is just for elected leaders. That doesn't address actually the infrastructure or lack of political infrastructure in Indian country across the country. So who's running the campaigns? Who are the vendors that people are going to for direct mail that they're going to for digital organizing? Where are the digital organizing experts? Where are the communications experts? Where are the fundraisers? Where are the finance directors? Where are all of the people that are going to be working on the campaigns? Because what happens is in an instance of a native candidate is that you were then hiring usually a straight white man to be the campaign manager. Uh, right. Of and so the disconnect, obviously going back to like the original conversation that we had is that you have a you have a strong disconnect from like the histories of all of our histories that we're bringing into a conversation to be able to help articulate all of the ways that we are viable leaders. So our organization is set out to help address that, but also to help build up the infrastructure in order for us to vote in our interests and be educated around what that means and to be able to have leaders who um, we are confident in their leadership. And we think of this as our indigenous values who are going to lead with our indigenous values use into positions all across the country. Super exciting. Wow. I feel like, like, you know, we, we got to put the word out more about, you know, how this is going on and just getting, getting your organization more support. (laughs) I, I, for one, I, for one, I'm like, sign me up. How can I support? (laughs) I mean, we obviously have a huge number of people, but it also is like, you know, those are people that if we are recruiting them and they are running and they're winning, but what is happening when they are recruiting and they're running and they are losing. Um, And what there hasn't really been a mechanism in this, like, um, I guess the overarching political, like training, like arm of like really holding on to those leaders, because we recognize that we are actively asking our community to step in to positions that have not been designed for us to succeed or participate in. Totally. So there are a lot of different layers of like racism and sexism and white supremacy and all of these that we are working to address in our training program to make sure that our community is well taken care of as much as possible and prepared to be out there. As you were talking, I was thinking about the realities, if not challenges of different kind of eras and and, and the context of that face different generations in terms of getting involved and then mm-hmm. how much people are do get involved and not get involved. So I was actually wondering, uh, and I've read a little bit, um, coming back to you, Anathia, on this question around uh, from your generation standpoint, in terms of getting involved, getting active, getting politically engaged, both for yourself and then your peer group. But maybe to frame that up a little bit, wondering, um, Roxanne, if you could share a little bit about your own kind of politicization process, right? In terms of, I, I've read a little bit about the occupation of Alcatraz, how that shaped you in that time frame. Could you talk a little bit about how you got politicized? And then I want to hear a little bit, Anathia, about how you got politicized, how you kind of look at your peers and this challenge of getting people involved in, in, in politics. Sure. And thank you, Anathia. That's awesome, the work you're doing. I'm so impressed. It really is important the electoral field and that Native Americans be represented. And this is just incredible that Deb Holland was not only appointed to a cabinet seat, but to interior 
<laughs> you know, that, that is unbelievable. But yeah. yeah, well, my own politicization, you know, I've been around a long time, really started when I was pretty young, uh, because I was a high school student in the 1950s. And this was the era of civil rights movement of violence against those protesting in the South, sheriffs beating up on people. And and because TV was new, uh, we saw it all on television and um, and heard it on the radio, even though it, um, well, I grew up in a very rural area, but Oklahoma City, I grew up in rural Oklahoma, but I did move to Oklahoma City my last year of high school and went to a trade school and it was the first year of, of school integration. The Supreme Court made the decision, 1954, that schools had to be dis- desegregated. So this was 1956, and um, uh, I 55, 56, my last year of high school. I went to the first integrated high school. Of course, they picked the poorest high school, a trade yeah. school. And mostly poor white people, a few Native American students. And uh, so this, you know, these highly trained young people, they were very impressive, these young African-Americans who who came into the school, took such abuse and and were so dignified and and didn't fight back and, you know, really knew what they were doing. I I was just bowled over and so impressed by especially the uh, young women and a, a very young woman was the leader of the demonstrations and all in, uh, you know, the sitting in on the coffee shops in Oklahoma City. So I watched this and I didn't really know how to get involved, but I said, that's, that's who I want to be. That's what I want to be. I oh, want wow. to find a way to be that. You know, it's fascinating, the interplay of what's happening in terms of the larger movements and the impact and how that shapes people's consciousness. So I'm kind of wondering, you know, and Anthea, in terms of as your both your own development and the work of advanced Native leadership, how do you, have you, what challenges have you faced? How have you gone about dealing with, I, mean, I imagine for one, there's just a lot of pressure around like, you know, conforming and going along and then how much to be, how much, you don't get a lot of validation for often as a, you know, person of color in this country. And so what has launched you in that direction, but how is you as an organization, how are you as an organization addressing some of those challenges in terms of what are the, and what are you finding in terms of people's receptivity or skepticism about getting involved politically? It's a really good question. I'm like, I, I often say that our very existence is an act of you know, political resistance. And there's, there has not been a point in my life where I haven't been aware that there is, a, I, I always think of it kind of like as a fire or an energy that is consistently going through like my, my whole, like my, my, myself and in like, in through our blood and how we connect with each other. And when we looked at a number of different, had a number of different interviews with people across the country to better understand kind of like their entrance into politics or their awareness of politics or how they have all come in. And almost every single story is like grounded in some act of like either discrimination or something that has othered them for like in, these were in the, um, in like in the early, I guess like in 20, 15. 
um, and maybe like there's like 2017, what has changed since then has been, we now have examples of our leaders in these positions. So our newest round of like our newest like cohort of now um, 12 people that are going to go through the initial cohort is of a group of 200 that we will then um, bring into like the next um, subsequent cohorts that are coming through as like um, in the leadership training program. But every single one of them named Deb and named Sharice and named Peggy as examples. And we haven't been in a time in our lives where we've had so many examples. I think of Representative Christina Haswood from Kansas, who has been doing leading some really incredible campaign outreach on TikTok and using all of the ways that people are communicating. The resistance primarily has been around viability. I think of a story of one of the um, one of the candidates that we interviewed in New Mexico who went through the Emerge program, talked about was a very accomplished uh, attorney, Navajo, and talked about campaigning in a district that was predominantly wealthy, predominantly white. Mm-hmm. And every single time she went to a door, they told her she was in the wrong district. Oh, and, wow. and they told told her that she was that she that she wasn't there for them and she was crying and crying and she just in that she decided she would never run for office again oh, she was never going to put herself in that position again and she said the thing that she was so angry about is that she it never occurred to her that that would be the thing that would have um that they would have thought about or that they would have put in front of her she said i came there as an attorney who had been accomplished in my field for years and they had reduced her to something that was just that she hadn't had to deal with in that way. And so I feel like when we think about like all of the ways, and I think of like a viability, and we talk about this, it's like decolonizing our view of what a viable candidate looks like. And that what has previously been taught to us or told to us is that there is a way that a leader should look uh, like it, they are legacied into the positions. You think of the Bushes, you think of all of these like legacied white families that have pulled their people into these powerful positions. Yeah. And that has made us like <laughs> through that experience has made us believe that we are not viable because we have colorful pasts mm-hmm. and we have colorful histories. And when you look at the whole systems of all of the ways that the system has ex- worked exactly the way that it was designed to oppress people of color and indigenous communities was of course we would <laughs> we have a different starting point and so when we are thinking about how we are addressing those directly and and then moving past it to talk about the viability of how we are going to be the be- how we are the best leader for a community like that's where we're trying to like move the le- the training program and the way that we are operating in these spaces that's not just for elected positions but that is for like making sure that we have consultants that we can go to that are experts in the field. It doesn't have to be a native field. It can be a native person that is talking about digital, just hard stop. (laughs) Like that you don't have to be siloed to a certain community, but there's so many different stories that we have like heard from people where they've been pushed out of different circles. They've been pushed out of different conversations, the traditional political systems of kind of like the resourcing machines essentially is what I'm getting at have like not have like have chosen to minimize candidates of color and indigenous people and communities. And so we're thinking through what does it look like for us to work around those systems and develop our own? Right. Yes. Just for our our listeners, you you mentioned uh, Sharice, who can know who that is, right? So Sharice Davids is a 
uh, Congressman newly, Congresswoman newly elected from Kansas in 2018, was Native American and openly, uh, first openly lesbian person elected to Congress from Kansas and a mixed martial arts fighter, right? So she has all of these <laughs> That's different right. things. So and has recently written a book um, that is really incredible. So she right. is also an author. And I just so terms of the, the central, the strategic understanding and significance of the even the native vote and then the leadership from there right one of the things that you know i recently learned in researching my own book is around the large concentration of native americans in arizona right one of the, one of the largest concentrations in the country and that they've documented and we're referencing this in my book that the increase of native american precincts navajo and hopi reservations was uh 17 000 additional native votes were cast in arizona in 2020 in a state that biden won by 11 000 votes so we're gonna pivot a little bit in terms of wrapping up and so i wanted to address kind of two questions, I guess, around things that are not exactly popular. Well, one is popular culture very much directly so, but the other before that, something that's a, a practice that's been out there. I really wanted to get your guys' guidance and reaction because there is this emerging practice of these territory acknowledgements and people will open up meetings and like acknowledge on such and such territory. And I could see that being received in different ways. And so I wanted to ask each of you how you guys feel about that is that something that you think is a good thing? Is that something that you think is, you know, tokenistic and not that serious? Something else? All right, Sam, we can start with you. How do you kind of look at this, the territory acknowledgement practice that's been happening? Well, I thought it was a good idea. We're on um, Ohlone land here and where I live in San Francisco, the Bay Area. But I have heard that there's a problem with it and that it's become so rote uh, mm-hmm. everywhere that it's as if people have done something, you know, uh, rather than just looked up, well, what should I say where I am? And the kind of tokenism might actually be counterproductive. So maybe it would be better to get up and say where, you know, the acknowledgement and then say unseated to make sure you say unseated land Mm -hmm. and then say land back, (laughs) you know, Give the land back that was taken illegally so that native native land bases can be extended to be viable, uh, you know, viable, have cities, have hospitals, have, you know, development. Right. So I think it's a mixed bag. I didn't at first. I thought it was fine. And then I was, remi- you know, I uh, raised my consciousness that... Uh, mm. Yeah, it is a kind of tokenism. If people don't even know, you know, basically, they just, it's a, it's a rote thing. And Athea, how do you experience it? I first feel that fall is a little bit of attack on Indigenous people and Native people. <laughs> it's like we're dealing with like, like football and racist mascots and like sports. And then we have Halloween and mm-hmm. um, a culturally appropriative. Uh, we had like obviously like the teacher in Riverside, California, that was recently like made national news. And right. um, and that like we have like, you know, the racist costumes that often um, surface during Halloween. And then, of course, like Thanksgiving. And um, and thinking of like that storyline, and so like it, it comes up often during this time of year, and like when it comes up on conference calls or like on Zoom calls and in conversations, it is like at the initially it feels a little bit like there's a visibility and it is a recognition 
of the community, I think what is really challenging about it is that's usually where it stops. Mm-hmm. I also think like, and then it's just like a move, it, like it is almost like a, um, you're just moving forward and like there's, like, there's no other um, accountability that is associated with it. I think like the other piece that feels that is missed is when you are doing the land, um, when you're doing the recognition, but also like what else should be associated with it. And then also the other piece that they're asking Native people to participate in generally is around giving prayers at the beginning of (laughs) of events. So they're often like using that as a way to kind of like check off a box of being progressive. And so you are doing an acknowledgement of the land and then you are having a Native person welcome people in by prayer, but not as strategist in the conversations. And so it's often a place that I push back on um, it's like in conversations because we're often being asked for people who can offer those um, serve in that role for different Mm -hmm. events. So I feel kind of, it is complicated. It is something that in the right, done in the right way, as Roxanne mentioned, I think that it is, um, there is an awareness and we should always be brought in the ancestors and the history, accurate history should be brought into a conversation. And there should also, it should be part of um, a way of being that is acknowledging history. Well, once they're done acknowledging, then they'll let you actually control the budgets and the. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad for your insight. I just, I totally agree that I also, through kind of becoming more conscious of sort of the impact that it's, it's really just like at one, at what point does it become performative and just makes certain people feel good, right? But then it's ultimately not enough. I was just thinking to myself, we should have everyone practice, you know, you, you say the words and then you say, you know, and also don't forget to donate to Advance Native. <laughs> you, know, so, <laughs> you know, some action, some call to action that goes beyond the the opening and the whatever's on the script and that it actually can result in direct impact. So speaking of impact and natives having control over their story, I wanted to close out by checking in with both of you on what I've definitely noticed and have been reading in the news about increasing growing representation of native people in pop culture and media, um, namely in terms of TV shows and some movies. I wanted to specifically ask uh, the two of you about Reservation Dogs, which I've just been checking out. And uh, another show, Rutherford Falls on Peacock, which I haven't checked out yet, but I have been hearing about. So my understanding is that almost everyone involved in the show Reservation Dogs production is Native American. It's the first American TV show with people in the writer's room and directors composed of indigenous people from North America and, and also beyond, is my understanding. Similarly, Rutherford Falls is the first TV series with an indigenous showrunner. I think the um, Reservation Dogs also has an indigenous showrunner. But regardless, it just seems like progress. I've been, I've been actually enjoying and quite fascinated with Reservation Dogs for it. what I feel like it's disrupting people's expectations. I think the casting is quite talented. And it is, for me at least, stories and insight into lives and worlds that I just don't get to see almost ever in my lifetime. Have you checked out these shows? What do you think of them? And what do you think generally about what's happening now? What they, I think I've heard it called the, the native sort of renaissance. Yeah, I well, Sterling Harju is the co-director or producer, you know, the invented 
the reservation dogs and and his uh, co-directors the maori uh film director whose name i can never pronounce uh it starts with a w and they are amazing i know sterling personally uh he's seminole from oklahoma he's made some wonderful films both documentary and dramas and so i think this is a real breakthrough for him the maori was already you know pretty famous i think he won the academy award even or was nominated so i i trust sterling i enjoy it i mean it's 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 comedy you know comedy drama and i know that sterling he did one on smiling indian smiling which is just a documentary of hundreds of native people he filmed just the face smiling because there's this you know kind of mythology of the dour serious spiritual native person that there's so many myths about native americans there's the savage and then there's the romantic image but the romantic image more or less predominates uh today uh in the united states and so i know that he really wanted to bring humor and reality that these are real human beings you know that make mistakes and do stupid things and absolutely things yeah. and are just you know just ordinary people multi multi-dimensional mm-hmm. thanks Roxanne how about you Anathea I am obsessed <laughs> I am so obsessed I like I mean I feel like it's very similar to seeing Congresswoman Davids and seeing Secretary Holland is that for the first time it, we are seeing ourselves in roles where we typically hadn't seen ourselves and in positions where we just have so much pride and reservation dogs in particularly felt like just like you were having a a secret conversation <laughs> with people that just felt so almost like disbelieving that like it was it it was just so real and there were moments in there where it just where it just felt you were a part of a special club <laughs> you know and it like it it just it was beautiful and i think it's absolutely critical that we are pushing there's organizations like illuminative led by um my sister crystal echo hawk who is leading just some powerful narrative and culture shift work uh within the organization and with these influencers and the rise of like native influencers which help build pathways for native people and normalizing indigeneity and normalizing native people as contemporary people and what they're often talking about illuminative is that you know like in classrooms native culture and people aren't taught after the 1800s and so there's mm-hmm. a huge gap and just this morning i was asked and they said i was native american in philadelphia and somebody said i didn't know y'all were around so oh my god oh my gosh it happens so often and i think that there is just this perception mm-hmm. that there is just outside of kind of like the the movements like standing rock which raise awareness of environmental issues is that then we are like built into this um belief that that is the only place where we can live right <laughs> um, and to be able to move fluidly through a contemporary life just as we are living in urban cities all across the country on and off reservations is a reflection of actually like the accuracy of just how um just who we are and so to be able to see it in reservation dogs and rutherford falls 
is just really beautiful and necessary and long overdue. And I hope that there's, it's just the very beginning of what sounds like Bird Running Water, who has been leading some really incredible work at the Sundance Institute and, and Taika uh, Waikiki, who was, I think, who you were referring yeah, to. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and um, yes, and so some just the brilliant minds who have been uh, leading some work on the um, uh, in our own communities and now getting national recognition is just so powerful. Okay, so we can watch them without guilt. Okay, it's good too. <laughs> right, because I was yes, like, maybe so they have right, some, so, maybe I'm missing something and they right, are saying, this is very problematic. Right, Don't, yeah, <laughs> and I would have been open to hearing that, but I am glad to hear that um, <laughs> you're a fan for all those reasons. And I had just right. shared with Steve today that there is apparently a show coming soon called Res Ball that I'm excited to check out. And uh, it was produced or it involved LeBron James so, Steve, it's there's there's two yes, double the reasons. Man, the man two who provided there the one you. sports championship for, <laughs> for the city. <laughs> I'm from in my entire life. Thank you, Brown. There, Bird Running Water just, I believe, has signed a contract with Amazon and doing work with Ava DuVernay. So there's going to be some really beautiful projects that are on the horizon that will be coming out. So we'll have to make sure to keep an eye out. All right. Well, we are unfortunately up against the end of the time, but just want to thank both of you for making the time to join us and really just express further our appreciation for the work that each of you are doing in terms of trying to make this country a little bit better and a little more just. So thank you for joining us. Thank you, Steve and Charlene and Anafia. Thank you both. It was wonderful to hear you, Roxanne. Okay, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Really glad we could have that conversation with Roxanne and Anathea. You can find Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz on Twitter at rdunbaro, and you can find Anathea on Twitter at at AnatheaBC, and Advanced Native Political Leadership at Advanced Native PL. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. If you listen to our show on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. We really appreciate that. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker, with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier, recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, keep the faith. 